will be in Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. We jump right in on the heels of where we were last week. If you were with us, we had uh, the Jesus speaking directly to the, the Jewish leaders and uh, speaking against them, that they were the ones that had rejected Jesus as the cornerstone, that many prophets had been, had been sent and they kept rejecting these prophets over and over and now comes the son and they say, we'll kill the son and we'll take the inheritance and they reject Jesus and they know in verse 19, chapter 20, verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour for they perceived he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they knew Jesus was speaking against them, and they sought to undermine him and to lay hands on him. And they're here in the last week of the, the public ministry of Jesus leading up to the crucifixion, so they are about to make good on what they are trying to do. And so we'll read this morning from Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. Please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. Luke chapter 20. Verses 20 through 26. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right. So we have this morning... I, it was, I had to just keep cutting and cutting to get to, to what we needed to, to get to this morning because this is a very important passage. We're in tax season and we get to, isn't, it, isn't the Lord amazing in the way that he brings about uh, the preaching of his word that we have taxes being addressed in tax season. So um, the spiritual realities of what we're talking about here this morning are very significant and I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. But it begins with, with flattery and enemies coming against Jesus. In verse 20, it says that they were watching, that they sent spies, that they were pretending, they were doing all kinds, it was a, a maneuver against Jesus on every level. They were working actively to undo him. And so they come at him in verse 21 with all this flattering talk. Teacher, we know that you speak the truth, and you're, they're buttering him up and buttering him up some more. And, but Jesus is perfect in his discernment. And he, he sees their craftiness, it says in verse 23. They, they, they know he, he knows exactly what they are trying to do. And I think it is important for us to see this, though, and to understand that the church and those around us in the world, these people are always present. There are always enemies of the church present that will come up to you and will say flattering things to you. And what are they, what are they trying to do? They are trying to entrap you in something that you might say. And so it is important always that we seek discernment and wisdom and that we are careful in the things that we say. 
And so Ryle says this, and I believe it's very true. The walk of a person's daily life, not the talk of their lips, is the only safe test of their character. And so Jesus knows the character of these people. He knows the heart of these people. He knows what's going on with them and that these words are false words. And so they ask him a question, and it is an intentionally entrapping question. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? And they're hoping that no matter how he answers this question, they're going to be able to nail him with the answer. Because if he says, no, it's not lawful to pay tax or tribute to Caesar, then they can drag him straight to the magistrate. This person is trying to undermine the authority of Caesar and trying to teach people not to pay taxes, and you need to arrest this guy. Or if he says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then they can take him before the people in the Sanhedrin and accuse him before the people of having divided loyalty. Look, his loyalty is really to Caesar. His loyalty is not to the Jewish people. These are our usurpers and suppressors, and we shouldn't be paying anything to these people. And so either way that he goes, they think that they've got him. But of course, they never succeed in tripping up Jesus. They never catch Jesus because there's nothing for him to be caught on. There is no fault in him, and his wisdom is perfect. And so what Jesus does here is of enormous importance. It lays down an enduring principle because in all that is recorded of Jesus in the scriptures, not only does he not get caught in things, he somehow ends up teaching a great truth in the answering of every one of these questions. And so what Jesus begins to teach here is reinforced over and over in the New Testament as well. And it's very important for us to grasp in our time. And so Jesus begins, as he always does, with some type of, a, of an object lesson or parable to help us grasp what he is saying. And so he asks for somebody to produce a coin, a denarius coin, a daily wage coin, and says, whose name and inscription and face is on that coin? And so, got a 20 for us today. So whose name and face and inscription is on this piece of paper? Same, nothing has changed Back then, governments produced money for the purpose of functioning business in the economy of man. And it's no different today. Here on this $20 bill, the, the Federal Reserve Note of the United States of America, printed in 2017, the Stephen Munchen, Secretary of Treasury, who's, nobody even remembers who Stephen Munchen is anymore, but he was the Treasury Secretary at that point in time, and his name is on this bill, saying that this is good. This is a legal tender for all debts, public and private. And we have one of our past leaders face on the bill. Exactly the same concept as what we have going on with Caesar. It is money made by government, by men, for the use of men. And so what use does God have with money printed by men for men? What use does God have with these things? And the answer is none. Okay? That is the answer. God has no interest in these things in ultimate ways. What do I mean by this? Let's look at the illustration of Jesus in the rich young ruler. This man who comes to Jesus with all the wealth that the world has to offer. And he comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we, we know what his anticipated answer is, is that I want some of your money. You give me some of your money and then I'll be pleased with you. And he'll, he'll be pleased with himself that he was able to earn this and, and then give this to God. And God was pleased with him for what he gave to God. And instead, the answer that Jesus gives him is, I'm not interested in your money at all. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come back. And then we can start talking. 
Because the answer ultimately, which you've heard me say many times before, is that the love of the Lord in your heart is what God is interested in. God wants you to love him from the heart. And to any degree that the love of money or the love of this world is an impediment to you loving God with all your heart, then your money becomes a stumbling block. And for that young man, the love of money and the love of the things of this world dominated his soul. And so God required that he give up that which dominated his soul so that he might love God with a full and a pure and a true heart. And so when we come back to the passage that we're at here this morning, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So the things of this world that belong to the governments of this world and the actions of man, you render those things to those places to which they are due. And in saying this, he is recognizing that government of this world has a role. Government has a place. And that government has a rightful authority. So this taxing authority that Rome has brought upon them, Jesus is recognizing this as a rightful authority. Right to make money and the right to collect taxes. These things are in the sphere of government. And we're going to spend more time talking about them as we go on this morning because this is no small matter. But how often have you heard this passage quoted? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And that's the end of the quote. Well, it goes on because there's, there's another half to this that is extremely important. Render unto God the things that are God's. So there's two parts to this equation here. So the question of this is then what does God require of us? If we are to render unto God the things that are God's, what would God have us to render to him? If Caesar wants some of our money for taxation, what does God want from us? Well, God does not want your money. As I've said before, he wants the affection of your heart. The Lord God wants your love and he wants your worship. We've been about worshiping God here this morning. We have begun already to worship God. I pray that as we learn more about the Lord from his word, that you will continue to worship him. We're going to sing again later, then you're going to go out from this place worshiping God. And as you go throughout the week, I pray that you continue your worship of the Lord throughout your week in the way that you pray, the way that you interact with other people. And this is what the Lord would have from you. Those who would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And what the Lord requires of us is that they, we would learn to love God from the heart. That we would have authentic obedience to him. That we would have a true-hearted confession. That when we confess our sins to the Lord and seek forgiveness, that it would be a true-hearted confession. And that we would know that we are forgiven by the Lord. That we would have joyful worship and meaningful prayer. Because the command that the Lord gives to us is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what God commands us to do. This is what he would require of us. That seeking after the kingdom of God would be the master passion of our life. That our life would not be divided amongst other things, but that the overarching, overriding drive of our life would be the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in service to him. That if someone came and asked, what is, it, what is your life about? What, what characterizes this person? That they would have no, no question, no hesitation in saying, this person's life is absolutely dominated by a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it inhabits everything that they do, and it directs everything that they do, and it is the underlying ground of their life. This is what God requires of us. 
But this is interesting because the government requires a tax when the Lord Jesus requires everything. Isn't that interesting? So this is a whole other sermon for a whole other day. But a lot of people mistakenly view what the Lord requires like a tax. And what do I mean by that? Well, I've got to take part of my money and an ever-increasing part of my money, and I've got to give it to the government, and I begrudge every dollar of it. And then God wants this from me, and I've got to give more and more of this. It seems like God always wants more and more too, and I've got to give this to God. And once I'm doubly taxed, woe is me, whatever's left over is mine, and that's what I'm hanging on to. And that's what I get to really spend. That's what I really get to do. And the, the most I can cut down both of these, these taxers, then I really get to live my life. If that is where you are with Christianity, you radically misunderstand what God is doing. Because what the Lord God is giving to you and what it means to become a disciple of Jesus Christ and to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to wholeheartedly give yourself to the Lord is to find that you are in a path of life, a path that gives to you far more than you are giving to Christ. And that in fact you come with an empty hand and everything is given to you by grace. And I keep going and going on that, but we literally, we don't have time. So I'm going I'm to keep, keep moving. But if you're like, what is he talking about? I encourage you to dig deeper in that. If your sense of Christianity is a life-draining duty, you need to understand you have missed the point completely, and we need to keep talking. Well, in verse 25, what he's saying here, "'Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's.'" What Jesus is doing is he is affirming the possibility of government authority and freedom of worship. Actually, I'm gonna, I'm, I've got a scale here going today. Government authority and freedom of worship as being able to coexist with each other in this world. And that is very, very important. And so I'm going to lay out for you this morning what I understand to be going on, which is a scale, an ever-sliding scale. And so on this side is going to be the, the side of complete government control. So if we think of the worst possible you know, North Korean scenario of absolute dictatorship, ultra-complete control by government, which, by the way, and this is an important point of connection, always requires ultra-high taxation. Because if the government is going to control everything, they will also tax you for everything so that they control all the wealth. On this side, we have a, a, another extreme, a no-government situation. And a no-government situation in a world that is full of sinful people will result in anarchy. Because when you have a complete vacuum of power, it will be filled by something. And those of you that have never lived in a war zone or, or been in a situation where there is no government and the chaos that ensues, it is, uh, it's sobering. But there's also no tax over here because the government takes nothing and it gives nothing. If we go back to this side, you can say, and many people argue, that the highest degree of government control equals the lowest amount of risk, but no risk also equals no freedom. And there's no freedom to especially to worship. Because in these situations, whatever church may exist is always a state-controlled church. If we go to the other far extreme, yes, we have no taxation and we have the highest freedom, but we also have the highest risk. And so what I understand that Jesus is affirming here and what is affirmed throughout the rest of the scriptures is that in this fallen and sinful world, what we are seeking is something in the middle. And what that means is that there is, first of all, freedom to worship. And in that freedom to worship, 
there is an ordered society of laws and that there is a moderate amount of taxation which allows for the prosperity of the people, but it also allows for certain things to be given to society that, that allow for an ordered and prosperous society. And that Jesus is affirming that it is right for government to collect a certain amount of tax, but it is also right that this government allow for the freedom of worship of the people. But one of the things I want to impress upon you deeply this morning is that we do not live in a neutral world. We live in a sinful world. And so on this scale, we're always pulling towards one of these extremes. And usually the pull is toward greater government. Why? Because people that do not believe in God and do not recognize his authority and care nothing about him want power for themselves. And they are not neutral in this. This is what world history is about. It's about people and armies and governments desperately trying to pull all control to themselves. And so the, the scale is being ever pulled toward greater government control, more power, more money, more allegiance. And so as we look at the, the aspect of the freedom of worship and being able to function as Christians in any given society, we labor to function as Christians in America. But I hope that your eyes are very open to the fact that there are Christians all over this world that strive to live for and worship Jesus Christ in all kinds of different government situations. And as we are being drawn towards this side of greater government control, where is the line? Where is the line over which we cannot cross before we enter into a situation that is impossible to render unto God the things that are God's because everything is being rendered to Caesar. And so the answer, I believe, is that when we can no longer render to God what is God's, which is worship and obedience. The most important thing that we've talked about here this morning is the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience to his commands. And when we are no longer able to worship the Lord God because we are forced to give that allegiance to a governing authority, then we have crossed a line. So I'm going to give you three things that I think are important in focusing in our, in our minds when we have gotten right up to that line and we have a problem and we need to be able to begin acting in a way that is different than we normally act. And the first thing is that we are either forced to worship some other thing or person other than the Lord, or the counterside of that, we are forced to abandon the worship of Jesus. So either, and this, this plays out in different ways in this world, there are some places in this world where people are forced to worship something else. This is happening a lot in Central and Sub-Saharan Africa right now because of the rise of militant Islam in Sub-Saharan Africa. It is worship Allah or die in many places. I would just send around a, a, an email about many instances of this in many different countries uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. And, and when a government reaches that point, it's a serious problem. The other side of that is to say you are not allowed to worship Jesus, which is a forced secularism. So their God is the God of secularism. There is no God, and I'm going to force you to also accept that there is no God. Either way is the same thing, where worship, free worship from the heart to Jesus Christ is being cut out and tamped down and smothered and sought to be destroyed by a government. This is too far. Second is the forcing of us to accept, praise, or commit moral evil. 
forcing us to accept praise or commit moral evil. This is when a government takes on the place of God and starts to actively say, yes, I understand what Christian morality is, but I reject this, and I'm going to take on myself, or this government is going to take on itself, the place of God, and begin to rewrite the moral order, and I'm not just going to allow people to do it, but I'm going to force you to accept it and take part in this. It's, it's one thing altogether for there to be the allowance of evil people to be evil. Like that's, that's just what the world is. But it's something altogether when people come to you and say, you must accept, condone, and take part in what is going on, or there will be consequences. That is a, a reordering of the moral order and government uh, authority overreaching. And so I think the third thing here where we run up against this line is when governments realize, okay, these older adult people, their hearts are set and I cannot change them, but instead I'm going to take hold of their children and make their children do these things. And we're going to take the next generation because we cannot get hold of this generation. And so the forcing of the above two things on our children in order to capture younger generations is equally uh, too far. It is over the line. And so when these lines are crossed and government takes on itself the place of God, which is what is happening, it no longer allows the people to render unto God the things that are God's, and it wants everything for itself. And the equation is completely out of balance. Then we have a line that we cannot cross and we must not cross. And what I want you to understand is that this balance between these two things is not a new struggle. This is not something new to our time. This is something that those who have sought to follow after the Lord God have always and forever struggled with in this sinful world since sin entered the world at the rebellion of Adam and Eve. If we look back in the Old Testament, we have so many examples of this. I'm just going to give you a couple this morning, but one that jumps out to me is what happens with, uh, in the book of Esther with Esther and Haman and Mordecai. Great story if you haven't read it in a long time. But there is this man named Haman who is a ruler, a sub-ruler for King Ahasuerus, and he takes it upon himself to despise the Jewish people. And he pays a large sum of money to obtain permission from the king to send out a, a kingdom-wide order to kill all of the Jews. It's very similar to what happened in Germany, a, a final solution for how we're going to get rid of all the Jews, but it happened a long, long time ago. And in his appeal to Ahasuerus, he says this in Esther chapter 3, I'm sorry, uh, Esther chapter, yes, chapter 3, verse 8. There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Isn't that interesting? This guy, this is a huge kingdom, over a, a spanning a great many different people groups and religious concepts and ideas. But there's one group of people that sticks out above all the others. And they will not worship the same way that we worship because they worship one God and the way that they live their lives is distinct from the way everybody else lives and, and acts and you shouldn't tolerate them. We should, be just, we should wipe them out so we have unity in this kingdom. And the king agrees with that. Well, you can read the story. It doesn't happen. 
The Lord protects them through a wonderful, wonderful uh, turn, providential turn of events. But we can turn to Daniel chapter 3 and see this same thing in one of the most amazing statements in all the Bible. Uh, when you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego under King Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, if there was ever a king that was on this far side of the spectrum, I will have everything. I will have all your money. I will have your worship. I will have your allegiance. It will all belong to me, and all the world will belong to me, and I will exalt myself as a God. And you can read about his life being humbled by the Lord. But before he reaches that point, he sets up this giant golden statue in the plain of Dura, and he's got it, everybody, a plane, it's a flat place, and there's gonna, we're going to play the instruments, everybody's going to bow down, and it's going to be very clear if anybody doesn't, we're going to be able to see it. And over here, I've got this giant smoking furnace, and any of you that don't bow down, you're going in the furnace, like is everybody clear? Yep, everybody's clear. All right, start the music. Who are those three guys out there standing in the middle of all this? Somebody, and, and they know who they are, and they expected it, and they drag them before the king, and they say this unbelievable, unbelievable statement of faith here, because they have gone all the way up, bunk, they're against the line, and they're not going past this line. They will not give up the worship of the Lord God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We will not cross this line. Like this, this is the line. Like the Lord may deliver us. He's able to deliver us. But if he doesn't, we're not worshiping your God, and we're not worshiping you as God. And Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy. It says he's filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed. You know, you will, I, will, I will kill every one of you. They see, heat this furnace up three times. Go read the story. It's an amazing story. Throw him in there, and Jesus himself comes and stands with them in the fiery furnace, which is amazing. Because Jesus stands with every person that reaches this far point and says, I will not serve a government as God. I will worship the Lord, and Jesus will stand with you as he has stood with every person in this struggle. If we go to Ezra and Nehemiah, same, same situation. They go and they seek to reestablish the temple worship. There's great struggle against government factions to restart temple worship. They're ordered by a king to stop, and they stop for a while, but then the prophets come back and say, it's time to get started, get started again. And there's factions and usurpers and conspiracy, but eventually they reestablish this temple worship, but it is in a situation where they are under the authority of another governor. They're still, the, the, the kingdom or the, the city is still paying tribute to a foreign king, but the king allows for temple worship to happen. And so there is freedom of worship while there is tribute paid. And this is where we end up in the time of Jesus, in the time of the, uh, the passage that we are looking at this morning. It's very important to understand the historical context. And so let me read to you from uh, a passage about the situation during the time of Jesus. It's very interesting. Um, the Jews were the only people in the Roman Empire whose beliefs were completely alien to the ideology of, of the imperial cult. The imperial cult was the worship of the emperor. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. 
This was blasphemy for a Jew. Death was preferable. The exclusive faith was not confined to Palestine. The Jews of the diaspora scattered throughout the Mediterranean basin also retained the faith of their ancestors. To serve the singular needs of this tenacious people whose monotheism, dietary prohibitions, and other rites and customs also tended to, a, to single them out from the other inhabitants of the empire. A series of privileges had been obtained from the Roman authorities, chiefly in the religious domain. Under the empire, they preserved the council of the Sanhedrin, and their religious organization was secure. For the purpose of the imperial cult, all they were required to do was to offer a daily sacrifice to their god, for the emperor, not to the emperor. There's a huge difference there. We are called upon to pray for our governing leaders, not to pray to our governing leaders. Very small words, but have an enormous difference. But even though for the Rome, even though for Rome the Jewish religion was permitted and legally recognized, a Jew, even if a Roman citizen, had great difficulty in obtaining a magistrate's office or holding an imperial post. And so they carved out an exception for them because of their tenacity on this issue. They said, this is our line, and we will not cross this line. We will die before we will go across this line. And they realized it was serious. They were, there was either going to be an ongoing battle forever, or they were going to give them an exception. And of all the people in the Roman Empire, they were given an exception to continue their freedom of worship. And that's where Jesus speaks and that's very important. They had heavy taxation. And he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but you are still able to render unto God the things that are God's. And so go and do that. Render your worship to God, never to Caesar. But like I've said earlier this morning, that this pull, the desire of governing leaders to have all of our allegiance and to have everything, that pull never stops. And so when Jesus after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and we get into the time of the early church, the pull keeps happening. And so what happens is it doesn't remain the same as when Jesus was alive. Eventually, the, the spirit of Rome, or the desire to have this Roman Empire, they, they, they attach a goddess's name to it called Roma, and they begin to build temples, and it reaches its worst place in 249 AD when Emperor Decius develops full-on emperor worship. And it had been around, and it had been a part of things, and sort of in and out of things, but under Decius, it becomes universal, mandatory, and compulsory, which is what we were talking about before. It's one thing for people to do things that are evil. It's another thing when they come in and say, you must do this. And in this situation is you do it, or you will die. And so what was required of Christians in 249 up to 51, it lasted for a couple of years, is that Christians were required to go into one of these temples and burn a pinch of incense and declare that Caesar is Lord. And when they declared that Caesar was Lord before a governing official, they were given a certificate, literally. And so the black market started with people getting forged certificates and the whole nine yards as to what was going to happen. And this was the time first, there had been some before, but this was the greatest time in the early church where the idea of a martyr came into focus, someone that was unwilling to declare that Caesar was Lord and they were unwilling to lie about having done so. And they died. They paid the price of their lives for these things. And there was another class called the Confessors because there was much torture that happened during this time. Those that were literally physically tortured 
for the sake of Jesus, but would not deny the name of Christ. But they were, for whatever reason, not killed. And there are fascinating accounts of the early councils of the church and the people that sat in the greatest seats of honor were those that physically bore in their body the, the missing fingers or the, the, the scars of having been tortured for Christ under Decius, but they would not give up. It's amazing. Um, these things do not stop here. This country was founded upon people fleeing religious persecution under Elizabeth I in England. State-mandated controls, a state church. And this was right as the Bible had been translated by Tyndale and people began to read the Bible again and began to see that there were radically things wrong with the church. And when they sought to have a biblical church, the state church, it came up against the state church. The, the state requires of you that you worship this way. And they said, we can't do it, we won't do it, we'll get on a boat and we'll risk our lives and we'll go to the other side of the known world in order to worship Jesus with freedom. And it is the same today. All over this world, there are Christians that face poverty, estrangement, death, church bombings, all kinds of things, of enemies seeking to stop them, and especially, especially governments working to control the church and to seek the worship of man and to change the moral order and to have our children in doing these things. And so I would ask us this morning specifically, where are we here in America? Because we still live in a land of great opportunity, in a land of tremendous freedom, and a land in which we should be thankful to live of all the places in this world. And so it is important when we look at rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and rendering unto God the things that are God's, what should we be doing? And so kind of taking all that we've talked about here this morning, I want to I wrap them together a bit. And remind you that the number one thing that we ought to be seeking in this life is the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. If because of all the things that I've said here this morning, your heart for Christ has grown cold and you've become very distracted and it's hard for you to say that yes, I joyfully and with a full heart love and serve Christ because I've lost it, I've become very distracted with all the political and news issues going on and all the, there's a pile of things that have happened over the past two years that could have caused you to wander away from the love of God as being the first place in your heart. But if that has happened, you must look back and think, first of all, we must seek first the kingdom of God. The, the love of Christ must burn most brightly in our hearts. And this takes us to the second thing. When we look at America and our situation in America, I would have us pray for revival. Why must we pray for revival before we talk about anything political? Because at heart, this is a spiritual issue. These things will not be fixed by political issues and votes because politics reflect the heart of people. Politics don't change the heart of people. They reflect what is actually happening in our country. And what we need more than anything, and what every country that struggles with these things, is to see people come to salvation in such a large number that people declare Jesus is Lord. And when their allegiance is given to Jesus, and when they love Jesus, the society begins to order itself because they understand that too much government is never going to work, and anarchy is not going to work. Let's follow after Jesus and have a God-honoring, ordered society in the midst of it. But this begins with spiritual revival. 
I've said it before and I'll say it again. There's a reason why I am here doing this and not running for some political office. Because I believe that what is happening here this morning is far more important to the eternal souls of men and women and boys and girls than anything that happens in politics. And if people come to salvation and joyfully and openly proclaim that Jesus is Lord, we will have a different situation in this country. And so I pray for revival and may you pray for it as well. The third thing is honoring governing authority wherever possible. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. When there are taxes, we pay these taxes. When there are basic civil laws, we follow these civil laws. This, the scriptures are, have many, have at least two very clear, very lengthy passages about submitting to governing authorities. And we cannot overlook or bypass these things. Jesus affirmed it and so did the New Testament. And so we go all the way up, if necessary, to the line. And fourthly and lastly, we must strive for limited government. What do I mean by this? Because this is important. And right after saying we must honor governing authorities and we must render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, I think it is right. And in this country, we have a unique opportunity through public speech, through voting, through participation in government to actively strive for limited government. And this is not a, this is not a political party issue. This is a spiritual issue. If you've understood at all what I'm saying this morning, People that dishonor God want authority for themselves. No matter what party they may be a part of, we can either continue sliding towards complete unlimited government or we will recognize the authority of Jesus which will draw us back from unlimited government to limited government. And I believe as Christians it is absolutely imperative that in order to keep us from going towards this edge and past this line where we lose all freedom of worship, it is important for us to participate in seeking after limited government, understanding that Jesus is our final authority. So I hope that these things make sense to you. Um, if not, please come, ask questions. I would love to talk to you, but I want to end this morning uh, with the gospel. And you say, how, how does this relate to the gospel? I'll tell you how this relates to the gospel. Because there are some of you here this morning that don't believe and really disagree with what I'm saying. You're an unbeliever in Jesus. And you think, I'm going to take care of my problems myself. But what's going to happen with you unless you are very young? You're going to quickly run into situations where you realize there are problems bigger in this world than I can deal with. And there's actually a lot of problems in this world that are far bigger than I can deal with. And so no matter how hard the heart of the unbeliever, they are forced to say, I need to reach out to something bigger than me or I'm going to lose all hope. And the thing that people reach out to is government. And they hope that government will be able to fix these great problems of poverty and peace and anxiety and troubles. And in seeking after government, I can tell you that you will be radically disillusioned with this sum total of wicked people gathering together to try to solve all the problems of the world. They do not get solved. Instead, without Christ Jesus, they get worse. And so my call to you this morning is to understand that Jesus Christ, his grace is freely given to you and that you might trust in Christ. And when you come to the end of yourself, that you will not put your faith and hope in government but that you will put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ and understand his love and his grace towards you that your sins might be forgiven. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you so much uh, for this time together. And I thank you for 
for Jesus. I thank you for his great wisdom and uh, the way in which he was able to discern the hearts of men that came to him trying to trip him up and to flatter him. And instead, he turns around and teaches them and instructs them about the way of the world. And Lord, I pray that you would help us. This is a, this is, these are deep waters here this morning. This, this message encompasses many things. But I pray that you would help us to understand our final allegiance must be to Jesus Christ. Our worship must be reserved for you. Our obedience in moral matters must be reserved for you. And I pray for those that do not believe you that they would believe in Jesus Christ and they would put their hope in Christ. They would submit to the authority of Jesus Christ by openly proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. I pray that you would preserve in this country our freedoms through revival. I pray, Lord God, that you would be bringing people to yourself in this church and other churches all across this country, that there might be a shift as there was in the first great awakening of this country, where there was a radical difference in what happened in the country through a change, a spiritual change in the hearts of the people. Be with us, O Lord, let us love you above all things, and never ever be willing to give up in the love of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.